0: welcome to the scott thompson show podcast thanks for listening tell your friends feel free to subscribe coming up on today's show the ontario government has extended the emergency measures act to may 19th what does that mean for the long weekend the hydro rate relief program will continue until may 31st what does the COVID 19 situation do to our ongoing problems with our electricity system it's all coming up on the scott thompson show podcast Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Dr. Teresa Tam was speaking again this morning, telling us uh, where we are, giving us an update on where we are uh, as we come down the backside of this curve. Here's what uh, Dr. Tam had to say.
1: There are now 62,458 confirmed cases, including 4,111 deaths. Over 27,000, or 43%, of cases have now recovered. Labs across Canada have tested over 970,000 people for COVID-19 to date, with about 6% of these testing positive
0: overall. All right, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, a faculty member, Human and Social Sciences, Health Policy Advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Ahmad, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks, Scott. Same to you. Uh, Your thoughts on where we are today? I ask you that question, it seems, at the beginning of every interview, but as you're watching us go through this, what are your thoughts? My thoughts
2: really are uh, that we have very good news today shared by Canada Public Health Agency that 43% of all confirmed cases are now recovered. That's really positive and something we should be celebrating people's good health is a a remarkable stand uh, and a telling marker on our health system's ability to be resilient and move forward. So I wish all those people who have recovered good health and I hope that we continue on this trajectory towards a COVID-free environment soon, hopefully.
0: Let me ask you this, doctor. What about, uh, you know, we've heard that people who have uh, uh, who have c- uh, uh, contracted this disease and 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 what happens and and some, you know, come out mildly uh, relatively mildly. and, and 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 not a lot of 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 fuss or or, or even ill health for that matter. Others, it's completely devastating in on ventilators for long periods of time. Do we know anything at, at this point of how this virus may affect people who have had it moving forward, or once you come out the other end with a clean bill of health, are you fine? Studies have shown so far that relatively speaking, people who have
2: contracted COVID nineteen and recovered somehow have a better immune response to it in case they get it again. And so that's not to say that they're fully immune to it. We don't know that yet. The evidence is not conclusive. But early studies are saying uh, that most likely people who had COVID-19 and have recovered and are in good health now are sort of more immune or better immune to it in the future. I think we're just going to have to wait a little bit longer on this to study the long-term effects of this and really try to see the antibody response. You're seeing a lot of centers in the U.S., for example, now testing for antibody, uh, although the World Health Organization is making a statement saying that shouldn't be the only definitive diagnosis, and we should be really waiting for long-term studies on this.
0: Uh, Obviously, this is a respiratory-type illness. Any word of long-lasting effect or people that have come out the other end of this with damage to their lungs?
2: We haven't seen any of those studies yet that have come to surface that we can see long-term effects. We have to remember this is a new virus. We didn't know anything about it a few months ago. So everything is going to take time. I think, Scott, what's really important here is that we remind the public that science takes time. Uh, We can make things urgent and we can fast track a lot of our studies. But many of those things, the human body takes time to adapt And looking at that adaptation of the human body takes a bit of time for the researchers to get ahead of it. We are doing a remarkable job. The science community has been fantastic in trying to study the effects of COVID-19, seeing the progressions of it, and really putting forward ideas of how we can move forward in studying this virus.
0: Uh, obviously, in the last uh, uh, few days, weeks, or so, we have started to see light at the end of the tunnel as we've uh, progressed around the top of this curve and 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 hopefully heading down the other side or heading down the other side. Um, uh, that being said, uh, it appeared that things were starting to open up, and again, they are very very gradually. And I think that is the responsible thing to do. I think most most Canadians. Uh, feel that way. Although, as we head into a Mother's Day weekend, and then after that, the May long weekend, uh, we see that the Ontario government has kept the Emergency Measures Act in place, which pretty much answers all the all the questions about how this will affect the May long weekend. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, surprised, disappointed, uh, appreciative that they have looked at, in advance, because many thought that this long weekend may be uh, that's coming up may be a, a relatively more normal long weekend, but that's not necessarily the case now.
2: So my thoughts on this is that we, you know, decisions like extending the Emergency Act don't happen haphazardly. Uh, they are based on the advice and evidence and solicitation by the top experts in the field who are weighing in and saying, you know, given the potential risks that might happen to the population health, we think it's best that we extend this deadline. And I think that's where that's coming from. I am actually kind of happy about that because I think the majority of Canadians do feel that We've done such a remarkable job so far. Let's not ruin the good efforts we've done. Let's make sure that we are we set the standards of how we're taking this slow and progressively moving towards a time where we're not worried about COVID-19 anymore. It is going to be a slow process to reopening things. uh, And I think that we are heading there for sure. You know, we've made huge progress in how we're handling this crisis. And I think time, just a little bit more time and patience will really play out in our favor in the long term.
0: What about the mental health aspect of this? I think many were seeing the light at the end of the tunnel last week and thought that things may be relaxed. Uh, how does this affect the psyche when we see uh, the Emergency Measures Act extended? And again, when you think that the kids are out of school till the end of May, I guess we can't be surprised here. But for those, I guess, that were hoping for that, uh, is this a setback? It's not a setback. I I do understand and empathize
2: with people's mental health status. Me, myself included, I feel that this is obviously taking a a toll on many people's mental health. Uh, I think that the light is still there at the end of the tunnel. Uh, We don't want to say that things are reopened quickly because then we worry about, you know, a massive spike in the number of cases. So things have to be happening gradually. We're just stealing time is all we're doing here to make sure that businesses can reopen uh, in an effective and efficient way, that parks, when they get reopened again, there are safety measures in place. The reality, Scott, is that without a vaccine in place and herd immunity developed, we need to adapt our systems quick. We're asking businesses who don't have this infrastructure in place uh, to really do a lot of work from their end. So we're just giving people time to get ahead of this.
0: Uh, We have seen uh, and we talked earlier in the week and last week about uh, what Quebec's plans were and how, uh, despite the number of cases, uh, they were continuing to move forward to open up. We've seen in the city of Montreal they have rolled those uh, back a week. Do you think uh, as a result of this step forward and then uh, perhaps half a step back that that's making Ontario and other provinces uh, rethink this as well?
2: I don't think so. I think Ontario has been very good about following the advice of the public health professionals of saying, take this as a gradual and slowly progressing stages. Don't we, And we've seen that, right? Like They've extended the Emergency Act. We're, they're putting out guidelines for businesses to reopen slowly and putting out measures for that. So I think we're moving towards more of a direction of slow and, progress, and progressive move towards opening things up. Uh, because we don't want to see a crisis happening again. We're not in a crisis phase in that sense, that we're seeing a massive spikes in numbers. We just don't want that to happen once we open things again.
0: Uh, We certainly have seen conflicting information in regard to the use of masks over the course of this pandemic, Doctor. Uh, As we're starting to see things open up, we're even seeing some stores that have said uh, they want you to wear a mask before actually going in to protect yourself and, of course, their workers. What is the deal around masks? What's your position on this? If we go out, say, for example, to a grocery store, should we be wearing a mask? And you know, a, a, another question, where do we get them? Can we make our own? What should we be looking for here? So there's
2: been such, you know, this is, I would say, one of the hottest debate questions that came out of COVID-19. Masks or no masks? You, you've you heard me say repeatedly in different news outlets that the recommendation is that we save the surgical masks uh, for our healthcare providers. But then guidance came out and said that actually they provide some kind of protection. I think the general consensus, to be clear here, is If you have some form of mask at home, wear it, is what now we're saying. Uh, Having said that, many businesses now, as part of their guidelines for reopening, are providing masks. I know for a fact that Nordstrom is now providing masks for any customers that walk in. They're changing their guidelines about how many people they allow in their stores. They're cleaning sitting rooms right after every single customer. They're changing their operating hours. Those guidelines are business specific. So every business is taking their own sort of uh, measures of how they, they implement those. But for the idea, for the question on face masks, I think that's going to be dependent on supply and demand. And the, the, the uh, public health advice for now is wear them if you are in a large gathering or you think you're in increased exposure. So let's say you're going to a grocery store where there's a lot of people around, then yes, okay, you can wear a mask. But if you're staying at home, or just surrounding yourself with only your immediate family members, there's obviously no reason for you to wear one.
0: Where can the public get one?
2: So they are available in stores now. I've been noticing that. And there were the country, Canada, federal government, is trying to make a conscious effort to making sure that there's enough demand and supply of those masks. Uh, stores are providing them, from what I'm hearing right now, is that uh, many businesses are looking into making sure that they are available for their customers. The big question, Scott, is, Will they be able to keep up with that? So that's my question about this, is that it's great that you're providing face masks, but if we're looking at life coming back to normal, are you going to be able to sustain this? I mean, we have to remind ourselves that parts of Asia, wearing a face mask is part of daily practice. So they've been able to do it there. Can we learn from them about how we're able to produce them and supply them to our our people, that we have a constant uh, influx of face masks for everybody?
0: I understand that the N95s are needed. Uh, they're obviously the very extreme version of these masks for healthcare workers. But we're still hearing, uh, and the premier has commented on this, that this shouldn't be happening. But we're still hearing uh, about shortages in various facilities and such. Is it right for stores to be handing these things out if there's still a shortage of them in facilities?
2: Absolutely not. N95 are reserved for our healthcare providers. We're not. We have to remind everybody that N95 are a specialized type of mask. Those are reserved for our healthcare providers. Those are not our surgical masks. So I think right. that has been really clear in terms of the messaging there. Wear a bandana if you have one at home, a piece of cloth seems to provide some form of protection. Surgical mask if you don't if you have access to it. But N95, that's the most extreme version of the mask and that's really reserved for our healthcare providers in healthcare facilities.
0: But are the healthcare facilities and providers also not wearing the lower version of masks as well as to not use up the 95s? Sure, they are,
2: depending on the case. So They're dealing with COVID-19 positive patients or a, risk, a higher risk of COVID-19 positive patients than they are wearing the N95. But when you're looking at rheumatologists or, or other kind of specialists in our healthcare facilities who are not taking care of COVID-19 patients, they're wearing your surgical masks,
0: yes. Yeah. Uh, why masks not gloves uh should we all be wearing gloves touching uh, things
2: so the the reason why masks and not they're, they're, there's not has been as much emphasis on gloves is because the messaging there has been wash your hands for 20 seconds and use hand sanitizer so we're sort of providing that protection by saying washing your hands and use the hand sanitizer uh Especially as class, sorry about the gloves the replacement of the gloves will become an issue, right? So if you're wearing gloves, you touch one thing, then technically you should be taking it off and wearing another one. So it becomes counter counter effective.
0: So um and again, I'm sure this is going to end up to be a personal decision, but if you are going out, would would you as a doctor recommend wearing a mask to some place that's crowded? If I'm if I'm hearing you right, you would.
2: Yes, I would, just because that's the advice now we're getting from sort of people who are surveying all the evidence. If you are going to a crowded place and you are of an immunocompromise or you're worried about your personal risk, then yes, wear it. But I think what you said was very smart. It is a personal decision. The evidence there is uh, that masks should be worn by people who need them the most. We need to provide them for our healthcare providers and that they don't, we're not really entirely clear on how much protection they're offering towards COVID-19. Uh, so but for that, for having said that, I think it's a personal decision. If it's giving you the peace of mind and you have access to that face mask and you're going to a crowded place, by all means, wear it. You know, We're very conscious of people's mental health status and that it is a personal decision, a personal choice.
0: Uh, we were out for a walk last night, safe distancing, uh, of course, and we're uh, yakking to some neighbours uh, from across the way and such. And uh, and it was fascinating, but you know, I guess this is typical because we're all different in some way. Um, that some were very concerned about the vaccine and were honestly questioning whether they were going to get it once this all became available. Uh, we've talked about this before, but this is this going to be a massive debate once this thing does become available?
2: It's already a current debate. So this debate on when the when the vaccine becomes available, who will get access to it first? From a health policy perspective, that's more of an issue that I feel in countries that doesn't have universal health coverage. So in Canada, we're blessed that we have a system that allows universal health coverage to everybody who's Canadian citizen or permanent resident of Canada. So I, I don't see this playing out as big. It will play out here, but not as big as it will in other countries where that's not the case. Uh, and so we, we, we're going to have to wait and see when the vaccine becomes available to see who will get it first. There's also a big issue with vaccine right now is about supply. Will we be able to produce enough of the vaccine to, uh, to give it to everybody who needs to get it, which in this case will be the entire population?
0: Uh, and there was some concerns, and this is just anecdotally with, with like I'm saying, people that I've been chatting to. Some were questioning whether it would be safe because it is so rushed. Do we want to take this thing?
2: Yes, that is a concern. So as of this morning, the reports are there are many, many clinical trials undergoing currently on vaccines. So we've developed a few vaccines. They're already in clinical trials with humans. They've divided them into people who got the placebo, which is the sort of not the vaccine, and people who got the vaccine. And they're testing them every two to four weeks to see the effectiveness on it. That's going to take some time. I think that before they put it out for sort of the general public, those human trials results will need to become very clear on how safe this is.
0: Uh, What about those that they're testing these on? I mean, obviously, people are concerned about safety, so there's lots of testing going on before it hits the general public, but are these people who are involved in testing, uh, are they safe going through this?
2: Well, it's a personal choice. Nobody is, you know, it's a decision they've made. And right. I was looking, actually, that's a really good question because I was looking at the participants to understand their profile. That's something of fascinating to me of people who volunteer for those things. And they're mostly, I found that, actually, especially the, the trials that are undergoing in the States, there are mostly uh, sort of people who are already in the field. So people in the scientific community who see value of this. Uh, and that's telling. I think we will have to just wait and see what the results are there.
0: All right, Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, faculty member in human and social sciences, health policy advisor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Stay well. You too. Happy to speak to you. All right. Lots of chatter in regard to the long weekend and cottagers and campers and such. Uh, today, the uh, the government of Ontario, the Premier uh, announced that the Emergency Measures Act would be continued until May nineteenth, which is just after the long weekend. So that pretty much uh, kiboshes the parks and and any camping and anything like that. Uh, but obviously, some lots of debate over Haldeman Norfolk and uh, their uh, medical officials there that have said that uh, they are going to keep the seasonal properties closed and that if you own one up there, you can't come up. It's Obviously been a great debate and lots of concern. Ken Hewitt, Mayor of Haldeman County, is with us now. Ken, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Yes,
3: and thanks for having me, Scott. Uh
0: so I understand that uh you're having the meeting with the premier or uh have had earlier on. Any new information here, anything more you can tell us?
3: No, it's actually ongoing as we speak. Um, but uh no, there's nothing uh nothing with respect to uh, our our conversation here today.
0: So uh, I guess as it stands, then, uh, your medical officer is has the final say here, and these will remain closed for the next uh, immediate future then.
3: Yeah, well, and that's always been the challenge, Scott, is that, uh, you know, it's the conference call that he alluded to yesterday and, and certainly today with respect to, you know, these orders, they're, they're driven, you know, medically and, and with respect to, you know, their data and the risk that's associated with it. And, you know, my thoughts are that, you know, the 34 health units in the province and the chief medical officer should be, you know, consistent in making the same decisions, uh, you know, along the way. And, and, And if the mayor wants to or sorry, the premier wants to have a conversation with them, it would be them, not the mayors, because we're not the ones that are driving this order.
0: Uh, that being said, many and I'm just playing devil's advocate here would say, "Well, there's, there's different situations in different areas, and obviously, this in this situation, they've made the decision for yours." Is that accurate?
3: Well, and that's uh, you know, and there's the the fine line. Do you have 34 medical officers operating independently, uh, or do you have the province operating in unison? And and that's a you know, that's a good question. I think one that we'll reflect on as we come out of this pandemic and look at. Uh, you know ways of of dealing with these situations but within a pandemic as it stands the chief medical officer has all the authority to make that section 22 order and that's what he's done without you know any uh you know decision or uh suggestion from us
0: and um are you surprised that at least there wasn't more debate about this or is this just strictly a medical decision and that's the end of it
3: well, it's it, you know, he comes from a from a perspective that uh, he he feels he's doing what's best for the community and uh and I could tell you I've had as many emails from local residents uh, supporting that order as I've had people complaining that that order is not fair and so mm. it's very polarizing um but uh you know, I think you know, it's it's a very difficult decision uh and and why it's not a political one because uh it, it you know, you're you're dealing with uh the medical well-being of people and and if he's if he's correct in his assertions that uh having people come uh to haldeman norfolk when you have a lot of migrant farmers just coming in and uh, and we don't have the support to service and you know to, to provide infrastructure for them it uh you know if he's correct in that then uh you know he made the right decision uh, but if uh you know obviously if he's not then you know there's going to certainly be a lot of people not happy
0: uh any idea how long this order is in place
3: well, I think it, uh, it's something that's being reviewed. Uh, I'd like to see it reviewed uh, certainly a lot quicker. Uh, but that being said, it's, uh, you know, hopefully as the numbers continue to stay positive, you know, I'd, I'd like to see it uh, reviewed and, and possibly reversed uh, sooner than later.
0: Uh, we're getting lots of email on this, as you can imagine, Ken, including yeah. from an example from one woman who, you know, uh, spends, I guess, the summers in her uh, park model trailer and such and, and can't get in there. Uh, what, what sort of situation does this uh, create economically when all of a sudden people start asking for tax dollars back and, and rates back and all that sort of thing?
3: Well, and that's the challenge, right? Is that, uh, you know, we've got businesses that have been shut for the last two months that are paying taxes. You know, what do you do for them? You know, we've got trailer parks that uh have paid for their you know, for their trailers and access uh you know who who aren't getting access, you know, do they deserve a rebate? Yeah, you know, where does that start and stop? I mean, at the end of the day I think this pandemic, you know, everybody in some shape or form has taken a haircut, you know, to to suggest that, you know, a cottage owner who can't access his cottage for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, deserves to get his property taxes back. It's you know, it's a it's a tough argument. It's certainly one that uh, you know, the courts and and the legal, uh, the lawyers will have to debate and decide the outcome of that.
0: Uh, Emergency measures act extended until May nineteenth. Does that help in any way, as far as especially the long weekend situation? Because that pretty much uh, dictates what will happen the long weekend. It'll be the same as Easter, I presume.
3: Well, it did. You know, it depends uh, on how you would look at it. Help. I mean, does it help economically? I, you know, I think it, no. I'd say. It hurts us, uh, but does it help us uh, achieve the goal of, of getting to the end and uh, seeing a, a safe community and businesses open up safely? Then you know, that's it sounds like that's the right decision to be making, you know, and, and here we are today, you know, already talking about opening retail stores again. So there's so many conflicting messages, Scott, that I think people are just you know, just as angry as they are confused.
0: Ken Hewitt has been with us, Mayor of Haldeman County. Ken, certainly not the first challenge you've had over the years. Uh, Boy, oh boy, here's another one for you. Uh, Good luck with all of this and be well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Patchy frost? Did you say patchy frost? Yep. A low of zero. Uh, You know what? There already is a lot of patchy frost in my house, if you know what I mean, Ted. One of those days, you know, when things get What a did you do from- now? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> Be- not- because clearly I am backing your wife on this 100%. <laughs> <laughs> you know, What the you know, am I talking to you for? You then? know what? When you watch Everybody Loves Raymond, you're Raymond. <laughs> Patchy Frost, oh my goodness, there's so much ice I can't get up the staircase right now. Answer the question. What did you do? Uh, I didn't do nothing, Ted. <laughs> I'm just taking the blame for everything. That's all it is. I just I take don't... the blame for everything. You, you know what it's go, like, Eileen. I love it. I'm the lowest rung on the t- on the ladder here, pal. You know that. King of the house? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Maybe the garage. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Is this going out over the air? And <laughs> hey, the dog barking. There's a the damn dog keeps barking. <laughs> There's like five hundred FedEx guys going around my neighborhood. All I'm getting is the <laughs> damn dog market. <laughs> All oh, right, we'll bye. hit it. Let's go. Let's bring in Michael Veal, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University. The EU says that they are facing a recession of historic proportion. What does that mean? Let's bring in Michael. Michael, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. I am. So uh, the EU says they are facing a recession of historic proportion. Is it any different in the EU than it would be anywhere else in the world at this point?
4: No, this this obviously is a historic event. Uh, All these economies that have shut themselves down, that's going to show up in the numbers, and that's really all they're reporting.
0: Because we have shut it down, will it be just as easy to start it back up? I mean, obviously, it won't be the door swinging wide open and such, but often when we come out of a economic recession that is caused by other factors, such as the last one that we had, it's a slow grind coming out. What, what do you anticipate this time?
4: Well, as you know from previous conversations, I'm a relative optimist about this. Maybe that's just I'm an optimistic person. Uh, but, there are signs uh, that support this optimism. And first, by fundamental reason for being optimistic is i I do believe in the market economy. I do believe that when people have uh, the ability to bring the economy back, they will do it it won 't be a question of just government it's it 's people uh, conducting their economic affairs and they, people want to get back and there 's a lot of pent up demand there as well and I think those things will be very positive factors. Uh, the stock market seems to suggest also that Clearly, it's down, but it's not down nearly as much as you would think if this was going to be a really long-term slowdown.
0: Uh, uh, as a result of those positive factors that could come out of this, as we as, as the economy slowly starts to gain traction, are you concerned about inflation at all? As we start to, you know, there's a lot of people have pent up. Uh, frustration, we've been stuck inside, again, things will roll out gradually and people may be uh, reluctant at first to go out, but once things start to, to really pick up, are you concerned that it will go through the roof and you know what we've been seeing or, and, and what we had thought would happen after 10 years of a natural cycle anyway will lead to this?
4: Yeah, so I am concerned about inflation, but on the other hand, I think compared to what we've gone through, uh, a minor inflation is probably not the worst thing that could happen. And I do think that the greater danger is that we're not aggressive enough in terms of our economic policies and and we fall short and we don't have sufficient demand. And so I suspect what we're going to have is a period of time where there will be a lot of emphasis on trying to get the economic activity back up to speed. Of course, all of this conditions on the forecasts for the virus being correct and that the virus is, in fact, going to be a problem that lessens over time. If that happens, might be some inflation, but I don't think it's our greatest worry.
0: Uh, obviously, this will be a slow opening. Uh, places that are opening are doing so on a reduced scale, uh, reduced perhaps employees, reduced customers coming into the store. Uh, it is the problem not only the pandemic itself, but the fact that it will take a while for this to get back to normal if once the doors do open up, perhaps retailers can only serve half the customers or, uh, again, the customers just aren't ready to come in yet?
4: Yeah, that's going to be the problem. And places that have opened up in other countries have, have found a lot of that. But I do think in terms of uh, economic activity, I'm suggesting that economic activity is going to come back. It, it doesn't mean that it's going to be as good as it used to be. So, for example, shopping may be a less pleasant experience for a while, uh, that, that kind of thing. But I do think that the odds are good that we'll have a relatively sharp rebound it doesn't mean we'll be back to where we were in December of 2019, but I think by the end of this year, you know, we're surely going to be 90% of that, assuming that the virus recedes, as they say, and and maybe better than 90% of that. And that's, you know, given what we've been through, that's pretty good.
0: Many have said that uh, how we come out the other side will be very different from how we went in. And again, obviously, things will be gradual as we reopen up. But what about businesses that have retooled, rejigged, uh, maybe used another revenue stream to get them through uh, this difficult time uh, in COVID-19? Uh, can you see any trends that are emergency, emerging now, other than the obvious online shopping? It seems the only traffic in the neighborhood is is, is delivery drivers. Um, but can you see any other other any other industries that are going to greatly change as a result of all of this? That life will not be the same coming out the other end.
4: Yeah, I think uh, lots and lots. Uh, the one that I think about, I suppose, that really affects my own life the most is uh, the business travel industry. Mm. I think we'll we'll find that people have, have switched to Zoom and they're not entirely going to switch back. It's, it's not just a question of cost in terms of the, the cost of the plane fare and the hotel, but it's also a question of the time cost, that uh, we were in a mode in which you'd invest a lot of time to go to another location. I suspect that a lot of business people will say, you know, maybe we don't need that, maybe we can, we can work without that. That is, in fact, going to be the general problem, is that while I think there's going to be economic activity, it may not be the same kind of economic activity, and it always costs when you kind of switch from one mode to the other. So we may need more of one type of economic activity and less of another, and those transitions aren't, aren't always that simple.
0: You bring up a valid point here because a lot of the chatter has been around health and economics and such. But, again, working from home has really shown a lot of people how valuable time is and how much of it we waste. Do you see that being a giant change moving forward in the sense that people will really reevaluate whether it's worth spending an hour, an hour and a half to commute into a major city every day?
4: Yeah, I, I do think so, and, and that's not a bad thing, right? That I think it is a good thing that we take stock of where we are as a technology is developed that allows us to do much more with less travel, why are we traveling so much? Why are we moving people around instead of electrons? And I think, I think we're going to see that. Uh, but, of course, it's not going to be everything in, in, all, in all cases. It won't change everything, but I think there will be moves in that direction.
0: Uh, we've talked a lot about climate change, and we're just waiting for the premier here. Um, we've talked a lot about climate change before COVID-19. Um, many thought that the way out of this was to shut off the tap, stop fossil fuel. We know what the problems are. That being said, it is proved that technology has really advanced this discussion in the sense that just consumption, it has allowed consumption to go down. Is this another avenue we'll investigate in the search, uh, you know, for a cleaner environment that technology can help us as well as abstinence?
4: Yeah, I think that they go together. I actually think that there was much too much focus beforehand on on abstinence because, of course, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell to tell people that, that value certain aspects of their life. Well, you can't do that anymore because it's too costly for the environment. The way to, to do it was to focus more on trying to find the most effective ways of maintaining a very high standard of living but also be consistent with the environmental goals that some espouse. And so I I do think we were moving in that direction. Um, I think this will accelerate it.
0: Uh, We have to run right there, Michael. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Oh, listen, can you hear that? I think there's a plane... Perhaps a helicopter flying out Daddy's open window right now. But at least it's not Joe Crow, like with the Prime Minister. Uh, All right. (laughs) Feel free to uh, get a hold of us on Facebook and Twitter as well. That's where you'll find the podcast edition of the commentary. And no, I'm not closing the window. Let's have the natural ambience come over the radio. This is what it's like in the hood of the thompson household all right uh... the uh... premier has announced today that hydro rates the relief program uh... will be continuing until may thirty first it was to expire uh... they have extended that uh... another few weeks and basically what that means is i believe you are charged the lowest rate but we'll ask tom adams all of these questions independent energy and environmental consultant he is with us now tom thanks for the time i hope you're doing well during this time
1: hey scott stand safe how about you
0: same thing, you know, uh, trying to uh, to get through it all, as I guess we all are, as uh, we're through, uh, I guess, the midweek of uh, of week eight. So, uh, first of all, explain to us what has happened here. Are we all getting charged the lowest rates here?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, like early on in uh, in this uh, crisis, right, the uh, province announced that the Residential and farm rate, um, uh, so-called RPP, the uh, uh, regulated price plan, would be charged uh, uh, at all hours uh, uh, um, as if it was a weekend. Uh, uh, so they were setting the, uh, the off-peak electricity price as the all-time electricity price. Uh, uh, so prior to this, you know, kind of just to recap – there was a, a, a three-part rate for the consumption that you actually use. This is separate from the delivery charge and everything that else that's on your bill. But just for the uh, the power that you were consuming, uh, uh, it was charged at the lower rate in the off-peak, and then there was a mid-peak price, and then there was an on-peak price that was about double the off-peak price. And... So um, uh, one of the kind of fiscal stimulus uh, 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 levers that the provincial government had access to uh, um, quite readily was to just fiddle with these, this price schedule and, and set the price at the lower amount. Um, uh, of course, so that's a, a benefit to household consumers. We are using more power than uh, we, we would normally Uh, be using the system generally is using a lot less power you know just so much less commerce and industry going on um, uh, that uh, the overall electricity demand is is down but household uh, usage across the province is averaging a little bit higher
0: is peak pricing a good idea does it work
1: well this is um, uh, like this whole pricing regime that we have for residential rates was all cooked up back in a time when we thought that we had excess supply of electricity, or I'm sorry, insufficient supply of electricity, and there was a big push on to try and encourage customers to conserve um uh all of this stuff is pretty crazy in uh the and not just recently it's not just during this crisis but um uh for for years now ontario's had a huge surplus of electricity and so we're in this perverse situation where uh, um you know often while we're charging the peak rate to customers um, uh, as if that we, we you know we needed to signal customers to cut back their usage at that same time we would be exporting power to neighboring utilities at huge discounted prices um at g- giveaway prices really and uh, because we had a surplus of power and that uh you know so th- this is it's all just so mu- so much uh, like like so many things in Ontario's electricity situation it like it, it just so fundamentally mixed up and backwards and sideways just like there's just no logic uh, uh to to so much of it at some point you know Ontario's gonna have to get serious about restructuring this the the power situation, but in the meantime you know during the crisis uh, you know the Ontario government's justified in in dialing back the uh the the price of course the, all of this drives you know begs the question of how we all are ultimately going to pay for all of this uh you know these rate discounts don't come for free so at some point we're going to have to get serious about straightening things out
0: is this the end of peak pricing um you know we're certainly seeing a, a shifting in priorities here uh we can certainly see what we've neglected over time. We can certainly see what we've perhaps wasted our time on with things that are more fashionable as opposed to the basic things like health care and jobs in the economy and such. And and as you're talking about, uh energy. So uh again, this is a mess, we know. Uh we certainly know that the long term care and the uh, uh seniors facilities have been greatly Neglected. We're going to see changes there. Will this jerk changes in the the electricity system and 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 such? Just simply because. Uh, the common denominator with all of these issues is government just is not nimble enough to make it happen when we need it to and the 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 electricity system is a is a huge example of that because it is just way more complicated than what it needs to be what will this all look like coming out of the back of covid19 will we finally say enough of this crap and let's let's focus on the priorities here
1: well i i i think it's got to give i i think you're absolutely right like what we're seeing here is a kind of a culmination of a whole lot of bad history um but like it's not just the residential rate class that the province has stepped in to provide you know some temporary relief for um, uh, it's also industrial and commercial customers where, uh, um, through another program, uh, it, you know, they, they, they discounted uh, something called the global adjustment. Um, but all of these are, are all adding up to the same thing. So there's an unpaid electricity bill that's coming due, you know, um, uh, w- w- it, it, the, the um, uh, financial impact on the provincial government is significant from all of these rate discounts. At some point, we've got to st- sort this stuff out. At the point where we're, we, we, you know, we, we kind of have to have this adult conversation about what we're going to turn to next in the post-COVID world. Uh, like one hopes that we start to come come to a more rational way of organizing electricity. After all, without a reliable, affordable power system, you, you know, we just can't have a, a modern world.
0: Uh, you know, you talked about uh, having an adult conversation when all of this is over, and it seems that we need to be having an adult conversation in a lot of different departments. Uh, it seems for the last twenty to uh, ten to twenty years in Ontario, we've been debating and discussion discussing a lot of fashionable issues that just don't really have that much of an impact on the average day, uh, you know, kitchen table discussion here. As I said, healthcare, jobs, the economy. Uh, and such. But will we will we see a change in in policy moving forward, especially when it becomes uh, when the issue becomes climate change? Because I know I know a lot of climate change uh, activists, extremists are saying, look, we've we've shut the country down. We can keep doing this. Shut the world down. We can keep doing this. Will we start to have more intelligent conversations about climate change as opposed to shut everything down, we got to stop this, it's the end of the world, we need a warlike effort, as opposed to what we've seen with technology and people staying home, that if you make things positive for people, as in progress, the change will happen naturally. We don't need these draconian uh, methods of, of, of making people go back 100 years in order to solve this problem. How is this going to change the climate change discussion? Will we see more common sense?
1: That's a fascinating uh, uh, question you know like people have to we, we are stepping into a world where we are going to be much poorer than we uh, we, th- we thought we used to be um, uh, like it's going to take the economy a long time to recover from this i i I fear um uh the the uh, impact like you know the unemployment impacts and people not being able to afford their bills this is this is a like a serious serious issue that you know really needs to be top of mind so a, a lot of uh you know expensive fashionable ideas that cropped into a lot of public policy areas but electricity being one of them um, uh you know, I think we've got to go back and, and ask ourselves the question like, can we afford to spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year on energy conservation programs to try and persuade customers to use you know less electricity at the same time we're giving away electricity to neighboring utilities? That kind of stuff has really got to get reevaluated
0: what is the biggest problem for Ontario is it health care is it uh, long-term uh, senior facilities or is it that we're not meeting our, our our climate change goals is 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 all of that way more important than health care
1: well you, you know I, I, <laughs> Uh, um, it, it, like to keep our energy conversations, uh, you know, w- it, you know, con- connected, you know, grounded in the, in, in reality. Well, I mean, one thing to appreciate about electricity, it's a relatively small portion of the whole GDP. Um, uh, and it, like it's a relatively small portion of, uh, you know, a lot of household budgets and whatnot. So we've got to keep things in proportion um, but at the same time, it's it's one of those essential services, and uh, um, uh, just because it, there's a lot of government influence on the way the electricity system worked, it became uh, a, 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 a a target for a lot of policy entrepreneurs, people who could get themselves very rich if they could fiddle with the rules to make sure that the electricity dollars flowed into their pockets. And, and that kind of interest group politics got into uh, the, the energy business, electricity especially, very heavily over the last 20 years. Um, uh, we got a lot of legacy to pay for it. We got a lot of bad contracts that are going to be hard to unwind but you know we got to be more serious about these topics P- people have to be able to afford their essential services including electricity
0: uh, wondered if you had an opinion on the latest Michael Moore documentary. I have not seen it, but certainly read lots of port, uh, reports about it. Uh, Michael Moore obviously has done a series of documentaries over the year, uh, over the years that uh, have been controversial and such. But most of them. Uh appear to be uh supporting these environmental movements now michael moore it appears has changed his tone and saying that uh it isn't as we see here that uh that there's certain areas here that can consume more uh fossil fuels than what we're doing what are your thoughts on on what we're using rather what are your thoughts on on this discussion around this documentary if you have one
1: well i uh, like I, I've watched this documentary and uh, like I, I have it, um, major points of departure w- where I disagree with more, you know, more one of uh, Michael Moore's m- m- may or yeah, not just him, but, you know, the uh, Gibbs and the other people behind the movie. But one of the thesis of the movie is that we need population control in order to manage our environmental problems. I'm not on side with that personally. You know, I'm just not comfortable with the notion of, uh, you know, um, population control. I think there's a lot of bad history around that idea. Um, uh, But on the other hand, like his critiques of some, uh, especially some areas of the so-called renewable energy uh, economy, uh, like biofuels, he's... Bang on! Um, uh, what we've done with uh, a lot of the biofuel uh, um, uh, oper- uh, options is just unconscionable. Uh, you know, uh, ripping out rainforests in, in in Indonesia and Malaysia to plant oil palm plant plantations um, uh, uh, for for uh, biojet fuel is just ridiculous. Um, uh, but, I mean, you don't have to reach to uh, Indonesia in order to see just gross wastage coming from biofuels. In Ontario, our, our, uh, we've been tearing down forests to to um, produce a, a piddly amount of electricity at a couple of power stations up in uh, uh, northwestern Ontario, at Atacocan and Thunder Bay. It, uh, at, 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 you know unacceptable ecological and economic cost so the uh, you know michael Moore's critiques of of some of the excesses of the of the renewable energy w- uh, um, policy world uh, i think are very sound uh, um, you know and we, we, we and like he's done us a service by, you know, opening the debate. That's not all that's green uh, uh, or that's labeled green is just automatically a good thing.
0: How do we have that discussion? Because what you just said, I think, hit the nail on the head. Everybody, you know, I mean, for years, governments have been labeling things green as just another revenue stream for them. And because Canadians are so conscious about the environment, if it's green, I'm in. Uh, How do we balance this climate change discussion? Will COVID-19 bring that balance to this discussion?
1: Well, like, I think, you know, we've had a lot of the the discussion around re- renewable energy has been dissociated, uh, uh, disconnected from the, the really the reality of what that's, you know, the, the, uh, what these options really mean. Um, uh, the, the, the problem of, um, uh, it, it, with wind power and solar power being intermittent sources of electricity when, Customers really need a more reliable source of electricity. That, that, that imbalance uh, um, uh, between intermittency versus the need for reliability, that never got the, uh, the degree of, of kind of serious discussion and analysis and you know, proper, inc- proper incorporation into the way we make public policy about wind and solar power. Um, it's just one example. So I, you know, uh, the, the the this this the experience that we're going through on the medical front um, uh, is one that kind of I think should reinforce for us the notion that we don't live just in a world of opinion, but there's a there's a, a, a concrete solid external reality around us that our opinions don't have influence on. The virus uh, 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 is going through its ecological cycle of, uh, you know, transmission and infection uh, um, in in correspondence with biological principles. And it's, if we're going to fight the virus, we got to understand it on its own terms in objective, clear, uh, 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 terms and not just stuff that we make up or ways we would like to see it and the same thing about our, our energy options we got to look at the reality of what our energy options are if you need reliable power then don't just say that wind and solar are going to solve all the problems
0: Well said. Tom Adams has been with us, independent energy and environmental consultant. The Hydro Relief Program, rate relief program, will continue until May 31st. And also talking about how this will change the discussion for a more balanced uh, climate change discussion in our environment moving forward. Tom, thank you for the time. Always appreciated. Be well.
1: Right on, Scott. You be well, too.